Welcome to Clearly KC, a podcast produced by the National Keratoconus Foundation, featuring information about life with keratoconus. I am your host, Dr. Melissa Barnett. I am thrilled to introduce you to our guest today, Dr. Louis Kara Olis, who is head of law and director of academic affairs at CIM Cypress Business School. He received his doctorate in law from the University of Oxford and was awarded an Arts and Humanities Research Council scholarship. He has taught law at multiple universities, including the University of Oxford. During his doctoral studies, he was a researcher in law at the London School of Economics and Political Science and an admissions examiner in law at Corpus Christi College, Oxford. He was born in London, England, and his parents hail from Cyprus. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So I don't think we've made this connection yet, but I lived in London my junior year of college and went to University College London. So I'm quite familiar with London. Nice. So how did you find the London experience? It was fantastic. I had a great time and had friends all over the world and in Europe and traveled all over. So it was a wonderful year. I think it was Dr. Samuel Johnson who said, if you're bored of London, then you must be bored of life. So that's, that's exactly right on. And I still love going to visit and my brother lives outside of London now. So he's been there for 20 years. We're here to talk about keratoconus. Tell us, when were you first diagnosed with keratoconus and what was your initial reaction? My recollection is somewhat hazy, but I think it was around the age of uh, 17 or 18 I was diagnosed with keratoconus. I seem to recall that I was wearing glasses around the age of 15, but the trips to the high street optometrist became more and more frequent. So I think my parents started to join the dots that something might be uh, amiss. And um, eventually uh, I was sent to Moorfield Eye Hospital in London. And that's when the diagnosis of Conus was made. And I recall looking at my parents and no one had ever, it, it sounded vaguely like a Greek word, but no one was really sure what it actually was. So they explained it. And when you were diagnosed, what was your reaction like? Were you surprised? Were you shocked? What were your emotions at that time? Do you remember? I, I think in the lead up to the diagnosis, I could palpably feel or discern that something wasn't right. You do prepare yourself. It was more uncertainty about what the diagnosis actually entails. Is this something that could be corrected with glasses? Is it something with contact lenses? Could it be remedied at all? I suppose there were more questions. There was a lot of uncertainty, really. It seemed like a quite a precarious thing. And having not really had many medical ailments before that, yeah, I suppose you have to internalize this news at a reasonably young age and I would about to say that I've really enjoyed the preceding episodes of this podcast and particularly the um, Keratoconus personality podcast which perhaps we'll touch on later but you realize that it can have quite a 
profound effects on you. Most people think of keratoconus from a pragmatic point of view on a daily basis about navigating life, but you don't really think about the psychological or your philosophical implications that it has for your life. So yeah, lots of that kind of interwoven together, I would say. That's very true. And we find this is pretty common when people are diagnosed in their teenage years or 20s or even 30s. Oftentimes, it's the first medical diagnosis. It can have a very significant impact on life. And oftentimes, like you, people have a lot of questions. And that's what's great about the National Keratoconus Foundation is that we have this great resource to answer a lot of those questions. When you had the questions at that time when you were first diagnosed, did your doctor help you answer some of the questions or did you feel like you still wanted more information? This might be a, a difference across the pond in terms of medical practitioners, but uh, I would characterize some of the consultants as quite laconic, actually. So it was quite difficult to um, elicit information uh, across multiple levels. You have the medical information, but then you have the sort of more pragmatic daily basis information. So I suppose just over the years, you piece together what the implications are. But I wouldn't say anybody sat me down and said, you know, what this in entails in its totality. And we don't have the sea of information that we did now. So I'm pretty sure the internet existed when I was diagnosed. But it wasn't as easy as it is now just to type keratoconus or corneal transplant into the internet and have a wealth of information at your disposal. Right, definitely. When typing information into the internet, sometimes it's not quite correct, the information. So that's why it's wonderful to have all these great resources at this time. Yeah, I mean, there's on the one hand, the search for information, but on the other hand, not playing the doctor because you could punch anything into the internet and anything's going to come up. A lay person could walk into a medical library and spend three years and come out none the wiser because it's about piecing that information together. I've always adopted the Stoic Greek philosophy of you have two ears and one mouth. So when I'm in the presence of a practitioner, I always listen more than I speak, though I do try to seize the opportunity to ask questions about latest developments in the field. Oh, that's very wise. And as doctors, we like to share this information. But I think this is also a great learning for us is that we need to stay on top of the latest developments of keratoconus and really have those honest conversations and provide valuable information. We don't like too much of Dr. Google. Yeah. <laughs> it can go down a rabbit hole sometimes. It happens in the law as well. So many times law students have been down the Google rabbit hole and you have to then undo some of the reductionist or misinformation that exists out there and start from scratch. Exactly. So you've had quite an extensive training studying law and obtaining a degree and PhD. Did the diagnosis of keratoconus impact your studies? Yes, is the short answer. So I was diagnosed before uh, going to law school. Had I been in America, I might have had a bit more time because law is a grad school. 
out there, but in, in England, you go to law school a bit earlier on. There were many times where I thought to myself, have I really picked the right profession because you don't study law, you read law. So copious amounts of dusty textbooks to read, which certainly don't help if you're wearing a hard lens. Lots of reading online, cases, journals, legislation. And I have to say that for people who are visually impaired, there aren't many tools at your disposal to help with things like that. Okay, you can try to zoom in on things, but sometimes the toolbar on a law journal just doesn't allow for that option. And just reading and reading for many hours, burning the midnight oil, as they say, the words start to blur together. But I would say one aspect of keratoconus is, and I'd be really interested to hear your take on the keratoconus personality, is that it's a sort of double-edged sword. On the one hand, it's the bane of my life, but it's also made me more tenacious to not acquiesce to the, the effects of this eye disease and just really just keep pushing back against it uh, as best I can. Not to frame it in an adversarial sense, as if my eyes are conspiring against me, but it does give you a bit more resolve, I think, if you decide to not let it affect your life. I think that's really important to not let it affect your life, keratoconus in general. And what we found is there's not really a true keratoconus personality, but there are many studies that have looked into it. And as we reported in our publication, it's the time of life when keratoconus is diagnosed can really impact a person's life. But good for you for studying. And I've never thought about the dust in the Mm -hmm. dust on a rigid lens. That could be just a huge problem. Did you wear corneal gas permeable lenses at that time? Yeah. So I had gas permeable lenses in both eyes. I still have a gas permeable lens in my left eye and obviously nothing in the right eye because I had the corneal transplant. But yeah, especially somewhere like Oxford, which is over 800 years old, there's going to be a lot of dust accumulating around those books. But um, yeah, where there's a will, there's a way. But one thing I would say and about um, the Keratoconus personality episode that you did was I was astonished and uh, embarrassed in equal measure to not really contemplate the profound effect that psychologically that a keratoconus diagnosis could have during the most productive years of one's eyesight, despite a lifetime of, I would say, introspection, hasn't really dawned on me that keratoconus may affect the way I respond to situations, may affect anxiety, or if you, something else goes wrong in life, your sort of resistance might be weakened by that pre-existing condition. And it sounds obvious saying it, but I'd never really considered it but though like i did say if if you try to push back it, it can strengthen your resolve and i wouldn't say that kind of inoculates you against the vicissitudes of life but it, you can have a paradigm shift in your mentality as well so the, the flip side of keratoconus personality if there is one is that it can make you stronger as glib as that probably sounds I think that's very true. And I think as doctors, we have this opportunity to provide resources for our patients. And 
resources could be as a corneal specialist, but it could also be a psychologist or psychiatrist or giving resources on work. And the National Security Conus Foundation has these resources too. But I see in many of my patients with keratoconus, um, they're very successful and they're doing very well in whatever, in life, right? Whatever profession they're doing or um, occupation. And I agree that perhaps the diagnosis and all they've been through has made them stronger. A positive outlook here. Yeah, but I, and I agree. And I think one of one of the difficult aspects of keratoconus is that it's not immediately obvious to people around you that you might have this. So one situation which occurs very frequently for me is that I'll be going down the steps on tube station. And if it's quite monochrome and dimly lit, I hesitate sometimes because I can't quite see where the end of one step ends and the next step begins. And you can hear people sort of huffing like, you know, what's wrong? Why? was the delay because they would look at me they think he looks fine what accounts for this but there's not really much and you can do about that that's true i also do a lot of work with dry eye and shogun's disease and it's very similar where to an outsider the person looks fine like nothing's going on but there's actually a lot more going on in their yeah. life i understand that you had a full thickness corneal transplant when you're 23 at Moorfields yeah. Eye Hospital. And how did the corneal transplant affect your life? Uh, the speed at which everything happened from the diagnosis to the transplant seemed warp speed almost. There must have been some serious degeneration within that short window of time. But um, I was pre-warned and the transplant was going to hurt and the doctors were true to their word. It was a very painful experience and I wouldn't wish it on anyone. But, but that said, it, it was successful. Every time I go to the, the eye hospital in Bolton, irrespective of their age, they look at it and they say, wow, it's crystal clear. So you have this immense gratitude, the experts who undertook this procedure for me. Uh, but it does change you a bit. It becomes not risk averse, but maybe I shy away from certain things that I would do before. For instance, I was quite an accomplished athlete when I was young, but I wouldn't really play football anymore or do any contact sports just for fear of a collision. And I don't rub my eyes. I seldom touch my corneal transplant eye because I have such an aversion to going near it. So there are pragmatic things which have come about as the results of the transplant, you know, also those psychological things which have made me a little bit risk averse sometimes in order to protect this transplant in a bit to preserve its longevity. So you know, I had it quite young, so I'm hoping it doesn't require replacement down the line. Those are good words of wisdom that you have to not rub your eyes and as far as being risk adverse, you, of course, don't want any trauma or damage to the eye. But the good news is, even if you did need a revision of the corneal transplant, there are new techniques that can mm -hmm. help and are not as invasive as the one that you had when you were 23. Yeah, and I think that's the kind of good thing from what I've been able to deduce from my own research, that things are 
improving. I think just, I think these riboflavin drops, if I'm not mistaken, that came about after, you know, I was diagnosed with keratoconus in the transplant. But I understand that people who are diagnosed with it quite early on now, there's plenty of things that can be done to avoid a transplant. So that's... Right. Yes. Corneal collagen cross-linking can be done to halt and slow the progression of keratoconus. So multiple studies have supported this, that corneal transplants are not needed as often, and because of scleral lenses too. Yeah. Yeah. Did the transplant affect your life personally, professionally, or psychologically? As we've said, I tried to to use it to my advantage, just to not allow it to interfere with my legal studies or legal practice. I said earlier, it's not the easiest profession, but then you think you require your eyesight for everything. So what would be an easy profession? Uh, I would say the only way it's affected me is that it's served as a basis for me to not allow it to be an impediment to any progress in my life. But it can get difficult, especially glare, irritation uh, in the eyes, that cloudiness. Unfortunately, I developed a bit of a cataract in my corneal transplant, which seems to have migrated to the center of my eye. So I never really talk in past tense about keratoconus because it's an ongoing thing. It seems almost smug to talk about it in past tense. You're dealing with it on a daily basis. So my current situation is managing the, the effects of the cataract, which could have been a consequence, understand of the steroid drops after the the transplantation. Maybe I was taking them for a little bit too long. But no, but the good news here is that cataract surgery is a very straightforward procedure, and even in people with keratoconus and who have had a corneal transplant, yeah, I always like to send my patients to a corneal specialist because they can take the measurements very precisely after a corneal transplant, but there still is always the possibility for the need to wear a specialty contact lens even after cataract surgery and a corneal transplant. But it's done very straightforwardly, and I think you'll do quite well. Yeah, I think with that, it's more the fear of something penetrating the graft psychologically. I'm so protective of the eye, but it's reassuring to hear that. And I'm sure that you have many good surgeons there too. Yeah. I just had an appointment at Moorfields and I have another one coming up next week. And I've never not felt in very capable hands. Yeah. Moorfields has a wonderful reputation globally. Yeah. I'm curious if any of your family members have been diagnosed with keratoconus. Not to the best of my knowledge. I know my grandfather on my mother's side had some problems with his eyesight he was in the military during british colonial rule of cyprus and i seem to recall he was discharged for something to do with his eyes but we never quite got to the bottom of that and i know my brother has some kind of very mild corneal thinning but nothing that has required any intervention so there certainly seems to be something familiar about it but I'm hoping it ends with me. The last question I have for you is what is one thing that everyone should know about keratoconus or one piece of advice that you wish to share? 
at the risk of sounding too philosophical and metaphysical, I would say that despite Keres making your vision a bit blurred, for me, it's brought the world into sharp focus in the sense that when you have to grapple with this on a daily basis, you start to realize what's important, what's not, and it actually gives you a bit of clarity of mind and you turn down the noise, I would say, on things which are not important and allows you to focus on what you know, is important in life, which I think is clear thinking and looking after yourself physically as well. Well, that is wonderful. I think that is absolutely perfect and great words of wisdom. And thank you for bringing so much light and hope and positivity to this podcast because I think a lot of our listeners need that too. Yes, keratoconus is a condition, but it can put everything into sharp focus and have a positive impact on your life. Yeah, thank you for disseminating all this information about keratoconus. It's a very pleasant surprise to, to come across the podcast and I was absorbing all the information from the previous episodes. And it, it makes you realize that actually other people out there I haven't actually ever met anyone who has keratoconus. You, you do connect when you, you read about and hear about patients who have it. And it's always fascinating to listen to, to practitioners talk about it. Thank you for sharing your story. And thank you all for joining us on Clearly KC. Please listen to the Clearly KC podcast on Podbean or your favorite podcast app to subscribe and get future episodes. For now, I'm Dr. Melissa Barnett, and please join us next time on Clearly Casey.